Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. I also have some good stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for about two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is July 7th, 2021, and things have started to settle in a little bit after those crazy weeks, the week that the Supreme Court announced its opinion on June 21st, and then last week we had all the flurry over name, image, and likeness, and then the NCAA basically waving the white flag and delegating to the universities, the regulatory responsibility for name, image, and likeness. And there's going to be, I think, a little lull here in terms of any big news stories coming out regarding nil. And the nil marketplace is going to start to play out just a little bit. And then all of the institutions, particularly the Power Five institutions, are going to have to figure out what they're going to do. There are now six states with name, image, and likeness laws on the books. I think four of those are SEC states. One is a big 12 state. And then you have New Mexico, which is in a group of five conference. They're not in the Power Five. So among the Power Five schools, I'm just going to guess maybe 10 schools among those four states, maybe more, I don't know, maybe 12, of the 65 uh, Power Five schools are going to be governed by state law. And then we have three states with executive orders. We have North Carolina, we have Kentucky, and we have Ohio. So even though you don't have a state law out of the legislature, you do have a state-based regulatory authority, the the governor, through his power to issue executive orders. And I've talked uh, a lot about both the North Carolina and the Kentucky order. I haven't really taken a look at the Ohio order. But anyway, so you've got now, what, nine states that are operating under some state authority and state regulation. And then the rest of the Power Five states are, are going to be left to do what they can do within the this vague guidance that the NCAA has put out. And I've been on a few websites of Power Five schools and states that don't have a nil law or an executive order. And it looks to me, again, we're going to wait and see on this, but it looks to me like the big-time Power Five schools are going to pretty much fall in line with the basic contours of what the NCAA has been proposing all along and what the working group has been proposing all along and what this proposed name, image, and likeness voluntary rules making from the NCAA was going to look like if it had ever actually been brought to a vote by the Division I Council. So I don't think, based on the early returns, and again, we got to wait until all the ballots are counted here, but it looks like there's going to be Uh, uniformity. So much of this movement in Congress was built around uniformity, uniformity. But when you look at what's in place now, both the state laws that are in effect, the executive orders that are in effect, and then what the Power Five schools are doing in states that don't have either of those, we're going to have uniformity. It's not going to be absolute uniformity, but there's going to be substantial uniformity and similarity in all of these regulations, whether they're at the state level or at the institutional level. 
So I'm not predicting any arms race, nil arms race, in terms of how uh, the regulatory framework is structured. Within that, and the little wiggle room that athletes are going to have to make meaningful money, there will be free market principles in play. And those are going to be very, very important because, you know, what happens in the next, I would say, two months probably, maybe longer, depending on, on when Congress gets back in and can get to the NCAA's agenda. But there's going to be enough data, I think, in the nil marketplace for us to start to draw some conclusions about where it may be headed. And that's going to be important information because, as I've said in prior episodes, it, in my judgment, is going to go to undermine this concern that the NCAA has said all along and has been saying for decades, whenever there's a threat to its regulatory authority or, or to its compensation limits, they say, the sky's falling. And if these athletes get a penny above their scholarship, then it will result in the fatal collapse of college sports as we know it and all that stuff. There's going to be data now that is either going to uh, confirm or refute that. And I think that it's going to confirm it. I just don't see the immediate fatal collapse of college sports. And that's going to change the dynamic. I think it's going to change the discussion in Congress. And it's also going to undermine this sense of urgency that the NCAA and the Power Five used throughout their Iron Throne campaign, which began in May of 2019 and went through to January of 2021 when they pulled out voluntary rulemaking and pulled out of Congress after they lost control of the Senate. So it's going to be interesting here. But I just want to talk about what these next steps are going to look like. And I just want to go back to what it is that the NCAA and Power Five want here and have wanted all along. And then I want to talk a little bit about the lay of the land as it sits right now in Congress, because the future of college sports is going to be determined, in my judgment, by the Power Five conferences and the Senate Commerce Committee. And the Senate is in recess right now. They're not coming back until the end of August. And I think now is the time to take a deep breath. And it's going to allow me, in terms of what I've been doing with my podcast, and I've been reactive, really, to all these crazy things that have been happening. And you have to be nimble in that kind of environment. But I think I'm going to have the luxury over the next six to eight weeks of getting back on track with being a little more deliberate and a little more organized in how I deal with this perfect storm that I talked about at the very beginning of this podcast in episode number one. And that perfect storm is built around these all these crazy events that I predicted and that were on the a table to a certain extent, but not all fully foreseeable. But I was pretty accurate in terms of identifying the basic moving parts that were in play that characterized the perfect storm. And we, we, we have some information now. Some of those questions have been answered. But this perfect storm was characterized primarily by the Power Five and the NCAA's quest for the iron throne of college sports regulation. And again, I said at the very beginning, and I believe this even more so today, that the central question here isn't whether athletes should receive compensation or whether a $10,000 nil contract is going to bring college sports to a fatal collapse or whether if an athlete gets a couple thousand dollars above the current scholarship limit that it's going to be the end of college sports as we know it. That's not going to happen. I think the NCAA knows that. I think the Power Five know that. The real question is who 
gets to decide. That has been the fundamental question from the very beginning of this debate in Congress over name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation. That has been the focus of the things that the NCAA and the Power Five have been asking for in Congress, and it has been the subject of the NCAA's a foolish campaign in federal courts to push the antitrust immunity issue to force it to the United States Supreme Court. And that turned out to be a grievous mistake in judgment and strategy. So I just want to talk a little bit about where things stand now. So the three planks of the Iron Throne campaign were first, the elimination of of federal courts as an external regulator for college athletics. And that has been done primarily through these athlete-initiated antitrust suits challenging NCAA compensation limits. And there was, I think, a lot of people, including myself, when the U.S. Supreme Court took the Austin case, and I've done many episodes on that. I think episodes maybe 7 through 16 were devoted to Austin. And in the very first episode, Austin was on my radar screen, and I had been writing about Austin for over a year and been trying to get anybody who would listen to believe that this case was not about education benefits. It was about the NCAA's quest for absolute antitrust immunity because that is an important component of their quest for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And that's one area where I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit because I didn't back away from that when I had people telling me that I was off track there. And I wasn't. That's exactly what the NCAA was trying to do. And you had to really be fluent with their briefing and the O'Bannon case that came before Austin to fully understand the extent to which the NCAA disguised that objective. And then it just came to life in its briefing in the Supreme Court. And they made an outright request for full and complete permanent antitrust immunity. And to this day, they denied that they did it, even in the face of a unanimous Supreme Court decision that explicitly rejected the arguments they made in support of that claim. So that that component of the Iron Throne campaign is dead. So the NCAA is not getting antitrust immunity from federal courts, and federal courts are still in play as we speak as a regulatory threat to the NCAA. And so they can always go to Congress, as I've said, and that's where they're headed. I'll get to that in just a little bit. Then the other important component of their quest for the Iron Throne was the preemption of any and all state laws that relate in any way to any NCAA compensation limit, whether that related to name, image, and likeness, or anything else. And the NCAA and Power Five have been pressing that, and they made a final desperate plea for it just last month in in, uh, June. And there were a couple of hearings in the Commerce Committee that didn't get the NCAA what they wanted. And that was before the decision in Austin. So that issue's up in the air. And all of this nil craziness that we've experienced, I think, is going to be rolled up when the Senate comes back as evidence of chaos and calamity. And this is why we need uniformity, uniformity. So that's still a live issue. And then the third component of their quest for the Iron Throne was a provision from Congress that would have made it impossible for athletes to be deemed employees of their universities, and that cements in this conceptualization of the student-athlete. But as important, it would also prevent athletes from organizing to form a union. So the NCAA can still get all three of those things, but they are not going to be able to get 
anything judicially. You know, that door is shut. That's an important shut door in, in the overall scheme of things. And not just because the door is shut, but the way that it was shut by the Supreme Court in a unanimous opinion that took a sledgehammer to the NCAA's presentation of the historic noble concept of amateurism. So again, it was a limited ruling, but uh, unanimity really makes it more difficult politically. And this is ultimately going to be resolved as a political issue in the political process. And I think that a unanimous decision makes things a little more complicated for the NCAA. So I want to talk just a little bit about where things stand right now in the Senate and in Congress. And I'm going to do a, a little scouting report on where things sit in the Commerce Committee. And remember, the Senate Commerce Committee has original jurisdiction over sports-related issues. And there have now been six hearings dating back to February of 2020. And I think that four of the six, uh, yeah, that's right, four of the six have been held in the Commerce Committee. The first one was actually in a subcommittee of commerce, and that was chaired by Jerry Moran. And of course, remember, for the first four hearings in 2020, the Republicans controlled the Senate, and Roger Wicker of Mississippi was the chair of the Commerce Committee. Jerry Moran, who's been very active pursuing NCAA interests, and he's been disguising those as this debate has gone on and after the Democrats gained control of the Senate. So Moran and Wicker were power players. John Thune was kind of hanging out back there, taking out the trash for him. He wasn't really a power player, but he was vocal. He was right there with them. But uh, they were pretty much having their way with the Commerce Committee in pursuing NCAA Power Five interests. So we had those four hearings. They didn't get a bill going. Then we have the Georgia special election and the Senate flips. And then the NCAA immediately ceases its voluntary rules making, which it was promising in January. And I've talked about that a bit, and I'll I'll talk about it some more as I go through the timeline deliberately. But then you also had the Power Five and the NCAA pulling out of Congress because they lost their advantage in the Senate, and they didn't really have a plan B, coherent strategy to try to keep their issues alive in the Senate with the change, with the flip from Republican to Democrat. And then, of course, in December, just a month before they pulled out, a month before the Georgia special elections, the U.S. Supreme Court takes the Austin decision. So the NCAA and Power Five have some hope that the NCAA is going to get this antitrust immunity in Austin because the Supreme Court took the case. And when I first saw that the Supreme Court had taken the case, I was very pessimistic because I was looking at the narrow way that the issues were framed and the fact that the athletes had abandoned the central purpose of their lawsuit, which was to challenge all these compensation limits. And they were only arguing for the court to uphold this limited district court order. And I'm thinking, why would the U.S. Supreme Court take this case unless they were inclined to grant the NCAA antitrust immunity, express or imply? And that was my fear. And after oral argument, I changed that because what I heard (laughs) was the exact opposite. So again, I had my little asterisks there because you can never predict what's going to happen with the Supreme Court or or any court, quite frankly, but particularly with the Supreme Court. You never know why they take a case. You don't really know what they're thinking. And I was blown away by their opinion. I was actually blown away at oral argument. I've I've talked all about that. So that was a, a, a nice, pleasant curveball. 
So then we had these state laws that were going to be coming into effect. And you had the NCAA doing the, the NCAA two-step, and they start renewing their claims of voluntary rules making in March and April. And in, in my uh, episode on current events chaos, I talk about all these things that were happening in April of 2021. And one of them was that the NCAA kind of renewed this movement back to voluntary rules making that they pulled completely out of in, in January 2021. It's like, what's changed? Why are we back in the game here? But they were saying they were going to have a, a, a formal nil policy and this Division One Council, uh, this thorough nil policy and nil rules changes were going to be in place by June and all, all this stuff. And that was more NCAA propaganda. They were just trying to buy time. And then we had these last ditch hearings in June. And I did episodes on both of these hearings. There was one hearing on June uh, 9th, and that was a preemption power play hearing where the NCAA and Power Five were doing their best to get a stopgap emergency bill from the Senate to at least preempt these state laws that were going to go into effect on July 1st to preserve the status quo until they could get their ducks in a row and then get a more comprehensive bill from the Senate. And after that uh, June 9th hearing, I was concerned that that might happen. And there was buy-in, it seemed to me, on that single issue of uniformity. It was uniformity, uniformity, uniformity. I just hammered uniformity. And then the following week, in a surprise hearing, that was not calendared. It was not discussed. It just popped up on the calendar for June 17th. We had a number of athletes, either current or former athletes, all African-American women, and the father of a football player who died of heat exhaustion. This was an athlete-oriented hearing. The Republican senators boycotted it at the insistence of Roger Wicker, and that hearing just really was powerful. And I think that it took the steam out of the NCAA Power Five's momentum on this preemption-only bill. And after that hearing, Maria Cantwell, who is the chair, she's a Democrat from Washington, the state of Washington, but she just said, look, we're not getting anything done before the August recess. And that was a big blow to the NCAA. And remember, that was June 17th, just four days later on June 21st, the U.S. Supreme Court drops its bomb in Austin. And then the NCAA is just reeling. So as things stand right now, at the end of the, the session, going into the August recess, we have the uh, Senate Commerce Committee, I think, poised to take up this issue when they come back. And what happens between now and then is going to be really important. And I'm going to be paying very close attention to what the Power Five schools are doing, what the Power Five conference commissioners are saying, the language that they're using, how they are describing their relationship to the NCAA, because one of the most important things that's happening now behind the scenes, and this has been going on for a long time, and if you really want to understand the relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA, and when I say Power Five, I'm really talking about Power Five football because football has been driving this train, and that goes back to the earliest iterations of the NCAA into the Walter Byers era and then into these power plays 
by big-time football interests in the 1970s to segregate their interests under the NCAA umbrella. Then this lawsuit in in the early 80s, the Board of Regents suit that uh, resulted in this Supreme Court decision in 1984, that granted big-time football its freedom from the NCAA's monopoly over televised football. And that was a football show. All of these big structural changes that have occurred within the NCAA and then through external forces like antitrust litigation has been running through the lens and the interests of big-time football. Big-time basketball is important, but really only because it's the NCAA's consolation prize. After, after it lost its football empire and board of regents, the March Madness tournament was just marketed like crazy. I would argue it's the most marketed single event in American culture now. Some people may disagree with that. It's become a month-long religious holiday for college sports. And the NCAA is squeezing every dime that it can out of that one tournament and marketing it like crazy. So that's part of this unholy triangle that I've been talking about from the very beginning. And it's all coming full circle now. But in that dance, it's this historical dance in the powerful interests between the Power Five football interests and then the NCAA national office. There have been power exchanges and then there have been detentes and compromises. And there's always this behind the scenes power grab. But in my episodes on the prisoner's dilemma, because this came up at oral argument in the Austin case on March 31st, and Justice Sotomayor asked Seth Waxman a question about the relationship between the NCAA and the Power Five conferences with respect to this Austin injunction order and who had the authority to offer these education benefits. And in response, Waxman invoked the analogy of the prisoner's dilemma and how you have these two entities that have really some interests that are in in obvious tension. And that's always been the case between the Power Five and the NCAA. But you also have a dynamic where they are both better off if they cooperate. And what Waxman was saying, and this was in the, in the context of a national standard for compensation limits, that cooperation was the best approach. And the only way that, that cooperation would work in this particular context would be for a nationally uniform governance authority to have the nationally uniform compensation limits that it could enforce at the national level. And if the Power Five went off on their own or they were doing their own thing, then the market would collapse. And so having invoked that, that really took me into uh, really analyzing in some detail this historic relationship between the big time powerful football interests that ultimately became the Power Five and the NCAA. And it's a fascinating journey. And I, I use Keith Donovan, 2004 book, The 50-Year Seduction. And it's about the evolution of big-time football in the television era. And that really was the beginning of the Power Five. And then you had conference realignment, then the, the Power Five coming into fruition really in, in uh, 2010, 2012. But I go through all that. I did three episodes on the Prisoner's Dilemma. So I would urge you to, to listen to those and really understand how this tension, this delicate detente that exists now between the interests of Power 5 football who operate almost completely autonomous from the NCAA, yet they are still under the NCAA umbrella and there are reasons for that. And one of the primary reasons, the glue that holds them together, is that the NCAA has been responsible for enforcing this national salary cap 
that's based on the cost of an athletic scholarship. And the Power Five get enormous benefit from that. And because of Board of Regents, the Power Five football interests don't pay a penny for the administrative overhead of the NCAA. So all these legal fees, all these lobbying fees, all the association-wide infrastructure and the NCAA national office bureaucracy are funded exclusively by March Madness money, not a penny of football money goes into the NCAA. And the other thing that's important to remember is that the NCAA has absolutely nothing to do with regular season programming. And they have nothing to do with the big ball games. They technically have the authority to to authorize those games and, and give them the institutional blessing, but they don't get any money from those bowl games. All the CFP money, all the ball money, all the regular season money goes directly to the Power Five conferences and member institutions there. So the only money that comes into the NCAA that the NCAA gets its hands on is the March Madness money, and that's from the championship, from the Division I Men's National Championship Tournament. The regular season basketball money doesn't go to the NCAA. So in this massive enterprise, the NCAA really doesn't do that much, except it acts as the national clearinghouse for this oppressive, overarching compensation limit. And that has enormous value to the Power Five. So after I go through what's happening here in Congress and give you a little bit of a scouting report about how I think things are going to shake out as we head into September when the senators come back, I want to talk a little bit about how the Power Five really sees its relationship to the NCAA in this quest to eliminate external regulatory threats to the big-time college sports business model. And I'm going to use some internal memos that came to light. These came from um, meetings or discussions on December 10th of 2019, after the NCAA had formed its working group, as it's trying to put together some policy on name, image, and likeness, or come to some understanding as to whether or not they were going to continue to outright oppose name, image, and likeness compensation, or whether they were going to try to put something together at the voluntary rules-making level. But there was an important discussion just among the Power Five interests in December that just really lays out in, in very stark terms the blueprint for how they were going to pursue their interests while allowing the NCAA to be the front person. And that's something I've been saying all along that Mark Emmert and the NCAA National Office are nothing more than puppets to big-time football. And in my episodes on that crucial year of 2014, I went through that when the Power Five conferences were starting to put together their quest for autonomy legislation, which would basically cement it in the Power Five as an association within the association of the NCAA. And Emmert was just their puppet at the Senate hearings and promoting everything that they wanted. And the same thing's happening today, but the extent of it, I think, is not well understood And that's going to be really important as we move into the Senate campaign, because it's going to be the political influence of the Power Five, not the National Collegiate Athletic Association. It's going to dictate what happens in the Senate Commerce Committee, which in turn is going to dictate the future of college sports. That's the long and short of it. But as the Senate went into recess, there were a couple of interesting statements that came out after the Austin Supreme Court decision. And one was from Maria Cantwell, and she is the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee and is from the state of Washington, a Democrat, as I noted earlier. 
But she had a, a statement that read, this was right after the Austin decision, today's ruling from the Supreme Court makes clear that the status quo in college athletics is untenable. Student athletes are the ones creating tremendous value and providing entertainment for millions with their talent, hard work, and skill. And NCAA policies must reflect that reality. This decision gives new urgency to the bipartisan work we are doing to set a nationwide standard for student athletes that gives them control of their name, image, and likeness, as well as providing additional health benefits and standards. That's an interesting statement. So I view Cantwell as really the mediator here. She is not super well-versed in these issues, I don't think. And when you go back to the early hearings, uh, starting in February of 2020, and I've watched all six of the hearings that have been conducted, I listened to them carefully, I've reviewed them many times, I've read all the written testimony, and I have talked about them, and I have posted on them. And when Cantwell was in the minority in 2020, and still on the Commerce Committee, she wasn't that super tuned into this issue. And I think when she became the chair, she really wanted to get something done. But her primary objective was a bipartisan bill, something she could label as bipartisan. And the problem with the way she's approaching this is that she is using the template that was created in 2020 by uh, Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran and John Thune and all the other Republican senators that were carrying the water for the NCAA and the Power Five. And everything that came out of that committee, including Wicker's bill in December and Moran's bill in February, were NCAA down the line. So you had a year of this momentum and a year of the issue taking shape around everything the NCAA wanted. So on the back side of that, you have Cantwell coming in, and then you have this really amazing Austin decision coming in late in the game here. But it looks to me like Cantwell still has this issue framed in terms of, okay, we have this momentum for uniformity and name, image, and likeness, and we need a federal law. And then she says, almost as an aside, as well as providing additional health benefits and standards, as if this other way of looking at things through the Athletes' Bill of Rights has been promoted by Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal and Brian Schatz and Chris Murphy, all those senators. That argument isn't as folded into the thinking right now, and it hasn't had the light of day. It hasn't had a chance to express itself. So this statement by Cantwell Her takeaway from the Supreme Court decision is, well, the Supreme Court, they said that athletes had some rights here, but now Congress has to act immediately. That's not at all what they said. And I think that the better message from that in the context of federal legislation that's truly going to take into account the interests of the athletes, and if there's going to be a meaningful bill coming out of Congress that grants the NCAA all these uh, extraordinary powers and immunities, there have to be important and meaningful and enforceable rights and uh, freedoms for these athletes. And those rights and freedoms, that discussion hasn't taken place yet. So Cantwell didn't step back and say, wait a minute, this is an important decision here. And we're going to listen to a unanimous decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. And we just need to start from scratch here. And we need to go back to the drawing board and we need to do thorough and complete hearings and vet all of the issues and really do a 
grand synthesis of this whole business model so that we can take all these interests into effect and do it once and get it right. But that's not where this is headed based on what I'm seeing. So then you had a statement, and this came from Cory Booker and Richard Blumenthal. And I think there was a, let's see, there was a congresswoman, Jan uh, Schakowsky, who's a Democrat from um, Illinois, and she's chair of the Consumer Protection and Commerce Committee in the House. So she's going to try to get something in the athlete's Bill of Rights vein moving in the House. But I think this was Blumenthal's uh, comment, and he says, this ruling, talking about Austin, points out grave deficiencies in the current state of college sports, but leaves several critical issues to be addressed. Congress must pass legislation that goes beyond compensation and gives athletes full rights to their name, image, and likeness, along with enforceable health and safety standards and improved educational opportunities for all college athletes. Anything less than comprehensive reform isn't putting the needs of athletes first. And it's important to remember that the Athletes' Bill of Rights in the Senate, as it's currently constructed, includes a revenue-sharing component where the athletes would get direct revenue from the university based on what they make in the market in the revenue-producing sports. And then they would share it with the athletes. And that is just on the other side of the earth from uh, where the NCAA and Power Five are and from where Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran are on the Senate Commerce Committee because that would just turn upside down the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, of the collegiate model, and of the student-athlete. And I don't see much compromise there. So this is going to be an interesting political potato here. And I just want to talk a little bit about some of the members of the Commerce Committee, because once this gets back into the lap of the Commerce Committee in September, whenever they decide that it can be back on their calendar, it's going to be a purely political question. And having exhausted their remedies in federal courts, the NCAA and the Power Five by Association have one venue left, and that is Congress. And once you get into the political process, you're stuck with its shortcomings. And there was this offhand language in the Austin decision, and there have been commentators and witnesses that have testified saying, these judicial antitrust immunities, I don't know, maybe we should be talking to Congress. Congress is the better forum. And I'm not sure that's true in this case because of the extraordinary influence that the Power Five have in this process. And that is not an athlete-friendly influence. So actually, the federal courts might be a better place to resolve some of these things. But there are going to be all kinds of absurdities, as there always are in the political process. You don't know what deals are being made. You don't know what interests are converging within a party or across party. There's just no way to tell what's landing with the senators and the lobbying campaigns. But we know that the NCAA, and as I'm going to explain here in a little bit, the Power Five have had a very well-organized, coordinated, sophisticated lobbying machines bringing to bear all of the influence they have access to. And it is formidable. And I would say more formidable for the Power Five than the NCAA right now. And the athletes don't have that. And another thing that's important to note, and this ties into this Power Five dynamic, is that the proponents of the NCAA view of the world are all from Power Five states, all of them. The proponents 
of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And I'm looking at Cory Booker from New Jersey, Blumenthal and Chris Murphy, both from Connecticut. You have Brian Schatz from Hawaii. So among those four senators, all of whom have been really outspoken on athletes' rights and against the NCAA's motives, none of them have a power player that is backing them. So Connecticut doesn't have a Power 5 product. So Blumenthal and Murphy, although they're well-respected and Blumenthal's been a great spokesperson, he doesn't have the, the clout that comes with representing a state that has strong Power 5 interests. And obviously Murphy doesn't have that. Brian Schatz is from Hawaii. Again, you just don't have a power player in the state of Hawaii. And then you have Cory Booker from New Jersey, and there is a Power 5 school in the state of New Jersey, Rutgers, but it was a latecomer in conference realignment. And if you're looking honestly at the mosaic of schools across the 65 Power 5 schools, you look at that list and Rutgers jumps out as one that might not quite belong for, for a variety of reasons, but it's not a power player. So you have extraordinary influence and power on the NCAA Power 5 Republican side. And you have really weak institutional and structural support on the athletes' right side. And athletes do not have a lobbying presence. They don't have Brownstein-Hyatt. They don't have access to pay these highfalutin lobbying firms millions and millions and millions of dollars to do their dirty work on an individual basis, a a lobbyist-to-senator basis. They don't have that advantage. So... This is not an even playing field, which I think makes whatever is going to come out of the Senate, ultimately, a wild card here. And that's assuming that this doesn't get deferred until the midterm elections. And then if the Republicans take over, it's a whole new ballgame. But let's not go that far down the road. Let's just look at what's on the table right now. So there are 28 members of the Commerce Committee. And and any federal bill on college sports is going to come out of the Commerce Committee. So you have Cantwell who's the chair. And then you have 14 Democrat members and 14 Republican members. And I just want to go through a few of the what I think are the power players and the role that they may play. And you have to remember that it only takes 15 votes for a, a bill to come out of the Commerce Committee and make it onto the Senate floor, where it only then requires 51 votes. So there are uh, a number of scenarios here where the NCAA and Power Five get what they want. And it's not going to take a lot of movement because the Republicans have been very solidly behind the NCAA Power Five view of the world. Even Republican senators who claim to have been progressive, like Mitt Romney, (laughs) that was a joke. Marco Rubio claimed to be progressive, and then he put out a bill that was as bad as any bill that's been proposed because it basically placed the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation, and the athletes got nothing, absolutely nothing. So the Republican side of it is just, it's totalitarian right down the NCAA line. And they basically just want to eliminate the athletes' rights movement, put the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation, and then just move merrily along with the status quo. That's their goal. And these Democrats, there are some Democrats who at these hearings have made it pretty clear to me that they are very willing to go along with a good part of the Republican approach here. So you have Maria Cantwell, and then you have the minority leader, Roger Wicker. And again, he has had his nose in this from day one, and he is motivated. So the other thing is, Cantwell's like, she doesn't have any intrinsic motivation to make something happen on one side or the other. and She doesn't have an ideological dog in this hunt, I don't think. Roger Wicker does. (laughs) 
<laughs> he has been on this like flies on a rib roast from the very, very beginning. And he's way ahead of Maria Cantwell. And then you have Jerry Moran, who's been right behind Wicker. And Moran was the chair of that subcommittee that heard the very first hearings on this in February of 2020. And he is NCAA right down the line. But he's trying to play the the wolf in sheep's clothing here because he's coming in like a a sheep and he's just all about uh, doing the right thing and bipartisanship. But when you look at his bill, when you break that thing down... Oh boy, it is not good news for the athletes. And Moran, back when the Republicans were in control, he wasn't spouting any athletes' rights stuff. He was all about getting the NCAA and the Power Five everything that they wanted. So then on the other side of that, you have Richard Blumenthal, who's on the committee, and he's been a pretty effective protagonist, I would say, and a pretty good spokesperson. But again, he's from Connecticut. So that makes a difference. Then uh, let's see, who else is going to be important here? So Mike Lee, he's a Republican from Utah. He's an interesting uh, person here, and he specializes in antitrust issues. He's been pretty hostile to uh, any kind of antitrust immunity. So I think that on that single issue, having a Republican that's a little skeptical of that, I think is a problem for the NCAA and getting the, the whole array of protections that, that it wants. And I'm not sure I see a, a scenario where they're going to get a really broad antitrust immunity out of this. Then you have on the other side, you have Brian Schatz, who I've talked a lot about. Democrat from Hawaii. And one of the reasons he's so important is he's the first senator across any of these six hearings in any of the three committees that have heard these issues who formulated the issues in terms of the NCAA and Power Five's Iron Throne campaign for the elimination of external regulators because he was looking at features of this bill that have absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness absolutely nothing, like some of the antitrust stuff. And then in particular, the protection of the conceptualization of the student athlete with provisions that say that athletes can't be employees. That has absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. It has zero to do with this discussion. And he called Mark Emmert to the carpet on that in that hearing on June 9th. And it was the first time that I had heard a senator approach the issues that way. And I was like, thank God. But I think... That's going to be an important voice just in terms of framing the issue. So I hope Schatz is going to, you know, step up here and really be assertive. Then we're into kind of our wild card senators, and they're on both sides of the aisle. One is John Tester. He is a Democrat from Montana, and he's shown up at all these hearings. There are like a critical mass of, of senators who have attended all all of the the hearings that have been done in commerce, and there's been varying degrees of attendance, but he's been there at all of them. And he's not in a Power 5 state. Montana doesn't have a Power 5 product. And he's talked a little bit about big guy, little guy stuff, some of the same issues that expressed themselves when the BCS was being formed and the little guys were trying to get a seat at the table, all that stuff. I think that's where Tester was coming from philosophically. But he was landing with the Republicans on a lot of their platform, and that was really surprising to me. He he seemed to me to be very deferential to the way the Republicans saw this and to providing these federal protections and immunities. Then you have, this is an interesting one, because she's been back and forth. This is Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, and she is no fan of the NCAA, and she is no fan of Mark Emmert, and he has really gotten under her skin, and she's made that very clear. At that uh, June 9th hearing, boy, she lit into him and just said, why are you still the NCAA president? She called his leadership into question directly, and I really like that. I think there should be more of that, but she is a Republican from Tennessee, 
And Tennessee, boy, you know, you're talking about a big time football product, big time. And there will be enormous incentive for her to preserve the status quo. And everybody's happy with the status quo, particularly in the Power Five states. And I would say even more so in the SEC, where football is such a cultural phenomenon, the Big Ten as well. And it's a religion there. I mentioned in earlier episodes that I went to law school at the University of Georgia. I spent about 15 years in Georgia, a lot of that in Athens. And it's a whole different ballgame, baby. I, I grew up with Duke basketball, and I played for Duke. And I understand Tobacco Road, and that was my frame of reference. But I had no, no frame of reference for SEC football. And it is just it is a whole nother level. And it's hard to put into words. But she's going to be under enormous pressure to go along with the NCAA Power 5 status quo. And even if she doesn't like the NCAA, she's still going to be a proponent of Power 5 interests. And the University of Tennessee is a proud Power 5 institution. Then... You have two categories of wild cards. One I would call the moderate white female senator who is susceptible to being misled on gender equity and Title IX issues. And I've talked about how those really aren't relevant to this no market as it's structured because the universities aren't in the market at all. And But that's such a, a powerful dynamic that and there are three senators, Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, Power five, important. Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin, power five, important. And Jackie Rosen, Democrat from Nevada, not power five, not a power player. But all three of them seem to be receptive to listening to what the NCAA had to say. And this goes back to the 2014 hearing. Klobuchar was uh, on the Commerce Committee then, and I thought she was pretty friendly to, to NCAA interests and power five interests. So you could have a couple of wild cards there. And then you have a quiet guy, Gary Peters. He's a Democrat from Michigan. Michigan, you know, it's like Tennessee. You're talking about the, the top of the food chain in college football. And it's very possible that Klobuchar in Minnesota, Baldwin in Wisconsin, and Peters in Michigan come down with something that is friendly to NCAA Power 5 interests. And there'll be an enormous political pressure on them to see it that way. So I think it's really important to, to step back and look at this through a political lens. And when you do that and you start breaking down the numbers and you're looking at votes, and that's how the NCAA and the Power Five lawyers and lobbyists see it. This is about vote counting now. It's not about big principles and public persuasion. This is about vote counting. And they're going senator by senator, issue by issue, and vote by vote to see if they can get to 15 votes in the Commerce Committee and 51 votes on the Senate floor. And that is not out of reach for the NCAA and Power Five interests right now. And again, who knows what's going to happen in the next two months before the Senate comes back and what influence this nil market is going to have and how the Power Five and NCAA will be positioning themselves heading into this renewed Senate campaign. But it's common. And in, in that episode that I did on the June 30th press release announcing these interim name, image, and likeness policies that the NCAA put out, I was breaking down the four people who were quoted, Mark Emmert, and then you had uh, a woman from Division One, a group of five, lower level. Then you had uh, a woman from Division Two and one from Division Three. All of them, three of them explicitly, but all of them, at least implicitly, 
we're saying we're right back in Congress. This is where this thing is headed. So once we enter the political arena, we are in the legislative funhouse. There's no telling what the hell is going to happen there. And there is enough uncertainty here and enough potential crossover from Democrat to Republican interests that this is far from being a moment where the athletes are going to capitalize on this energy from the Austin ruling and just march into Congress and get everything they want in the Athletes' Bill of Rights. There are just so many important factors that are weighing against that, in my judgment, just looking at it through a purely political lens. And one of the things that I have tried to do in my podcast is to really emphasize at the political level and the political arena how important the Power Five's influence is and how they have a direct pipeline of political power and influence to their senators. They don't have to go through the NCAA. The NCAA is just this sort of diffuse body. And because they have been in the driver's seat for so long on all these external issues like litigation and lobbying and public relations, the Power Five's been getting a free ride. And it wasn't until 2020 and actually heading into 2020, as the NCAA is starting to really formalize a campaign, a strategy in Congress, that the Power Five started to say, wait a minute here, is this really the direction we want to go? And so I want to talk for a few minutes, and I'm going to go into probably more detail into this when I do the timeline. Now that I have the luxury of about two months now, and I'm going to get back on track with a more uh, organized approach. I'm going to follow the timeline from May of 2019 through to the present and just go event by event and hearing by hearing and press release by press release and lawsuit by lawsuit to really look at how this has all played out and how the issues have evolved and how the power players have interacted with the issues and how they've changed, quite frankly. But in December of 2019, so just to set the table a little bit for the timeline, you had May of 2019, May 14th, Mark Walker introduces his bill in the House. And then you had the NCAA putting together this working group. And then you're heading into the fall and you have the California Fair Pay to Play Act that was passed, I think, on September 11th of 2019 and then signed into law by Gavin Newsom on September 30th. And then you had the NCAA sending all these threat letters saying they were going to sue the state of California. Their approach there on nil was not athlete friendly. <laughs> and they were uh, just digging in. And remember, they were less than a year off of the attorney's fees litigation in O'Bannon, where they spent $100 million to avoid paying a penny in name, image, and likeness compensation. They didn't change their attitude in a year. They changed their strategy. And the strategy was first a public relations strategy. When that was falling apart on them and the uh, California law gained uh, momentum and support, then they shifted to this stealth campaign in the Senate while they were leading the public to believe that they were seriously pursuing voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness. So heading into October, then we started to see the NCAA propaganda machine kick in. And through the working group, the working group was a conduit for this. They put out an interim report on October 23rd that got all kinds 
tons of media attention. And man, they just poured it on and the media just ate it up and they were spitting out NCAA propaganda and nil is on the way and there are now nil rules changes. And that really went on steroids on October 29th when the NCAA Board of Governors adopted the recommendations of the working group from its interim report on October 23rd. And there was just a media feeding frenzy. And there were patently false headlines from coast to coast saying that the NCAA had changed its rules and nil compensation was now in place. And if you had conducted a poll on October 30th or October 31st, just asking the people on the street, are athletes now allowed to make money from their name, image, and likeness? I would say eight out of 10 people would say yes. And they would have been absolutely wrong. Because the NCAA did no such thing. Then, so we're cruising into November. The public's been led to believe that it's a done deal. And the NCAA secretly, we don't know this until 2020, but in November of 2019, I think it was November 16th, the working group puts together this secret subcommittee that was tasked explicitly to try to get help from Congress. And that was the beginning of the formation of this uh, three-pronged attack. And that was preemption of any law that was inconsistent with NCAA compensation limits, complete antitrust immunity, so no more antitrust suits, and then athletes can't be employees. And that's where they were headed, and they were making inroads through their lobbyists in the Senate. And then on December 6th, the NCAA issued a really interesting press release on, you know, its media center thing where they put out all their propaganda. And it was very cryptic, but they made some suggestion that they were going to be engaging the Senate on some protections. Let me see if I can just pull that out real quick. I want to be clear about what that said. Oh, wait, here it is. Here it is. So this is a statement on Senate Working Group. And this is the only public acknowledgement. It's only two sentences. It's very brief. It's December 6, uh, 2019. It says the NCAA and its member schools and conferences are committed to enhancing our rules while providing the best educational and athletic experience for our student athletes. We know that continuing our modernization of rules will require some level of federal assistance, and we look forward to working with federal legislators as we drive improvements for the next decade. And that's just vague to the point of incomprehension. So they mentioned the Senate working group. I, I don't know. But that, I think, was a, a cryptic reference to this subcommittee, this presidential subcommittee on legislative action. So the NCAA could claim in hindsight that they weren't sandbagging. Oh, we have this little thing on our website. But four days later, on December 10th, there is a teleconference, a strategy and messaging session among the Power Five on name, image, and likeness. And it was a conference call, and the NCAA was not a participant. Mark Emmert was not there, and this was a Power Five show. And there were participants from all five Power Five conferences. There were a total of 15 people, including presidents, uh, chancellors, and conference commissioners. And uh, some conferences had several people there. So uh, 15 total, and they were all men, all men, and 12 of them were white men. It was the boys club. This is like the treehouse version of NCAA and big-time college sports governance. Because also on, on this call was Dr. Michael Drake, who was president of Ohio State and also president of the NCAA Board of Governors. 
Very interesting stuff here. And he's African-American. But this was the boys' club. And they, this is really, I think, how decisions and policies about big-time college sports are made. It's a very small group, a very powerful group. And this is how the messaging begins. And messaging is a big part of this teleconference. So it starts by saying, let's see, agenda and speaker notes with Dr. Drake. And it, let's see, let me just go back to the title. The full title is The Power Five's Nil Strategy and Messaging. Subtitle, Autonomy Five, that's Power Five, Nil Strategy Call. Okay. So essentially what they, what the Power Five were saying is that we need to take the lead on this because we don't really want the NCAA taking the lead on this. And so they say Autonomy Five needs to take the lead on a collaborative approach. And based on some discussions, they concluded that it, would, it was time to convene the commissioners, the conference commissioners, and presidential, university presidential leadership to hear their thoughts, see what kind of alignment we may have, and chart a course going forward. So they then built an agenda on four items. One, discuss the federal legislative coalition that our commissioners envision. Okay, who's going to be lobbying on behalf of the Power Five? in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Two, review and discuss how we work with the NCAA on this effort. And this is so, so important because we'll get to that in a minute because they really start to tease out how they see their relationship with the NCAA. And then three, determine the level of alignment we have on our core foundational principles and messaging. And then four, talking about next steps. So on item number two on the agenda, proposed uh, federal legislation coalition, they say, how do we engage Washington, D.C. and federal lawmakers? We need to outline how our commissioners are thinking about this coalition and our collaborative federal approach. So this is a purposeful strategy to engage Congress to get what the Power Five want. And so they say, let's see, how we work with the NCAA and other groups. All of us are engaged with the NCAA, and we have representatives from our universities and conferences on the NCAA's NIL working group. So there's crossover there. At the same time, there are concerns about the NCAA's ability to lead this effort in Washington. The feedback from the group is threefold. First, It is our 65 universities in the Power Five that have the most significant stake in the outcome of any legislation. The NCAA represents so many different interests, and we've seen through autonomy, through the Power Five autonomy, it is best for the 65 universities to lead. That is just saying out loud that the big-time college sports marketplace is the Power Five, and That goes back to the strong arming in 2013 and 2014 to get the autonomy classification. Then they say, second, there is a real concern about the image and brand of the NCAA in Washington. Given all the debates and issues over the last few years, the blue disc, and that's a reference to the NCAA logo, the blue disc is not well received by members of Congress and senators. (laughs) No kidding. And third, they say, related to that last point, 
Our universities have the closest and best relationships with our representatives in Washington. Relationships with our 65 universities are what members of Congress and senators care about. That is so, so important because that is the acknowledgement of, of a point I've been trying to make all along. And that is, you can take the NCAA out of this equation, and if the Power Five just got them out of the way, and they just had a direct pipeline to the senators in these Power Five states, and they harnessed the political power and the energy of the fan base and the cultural importance of football particularly, but also basketball in some of these states, and they just go straight to their senators, that's a far more effective lobbying campaign than the NCAA hiring Brownstein Hyatt to go in and try to twist arms. And it's a much more honest approach, too. And the senators are going to be much more receptive to that message. And that's what's happening right now. So this was back in December, remember. And then the NCAA still took the lead in Congress. Then the Power Five didn't like the progress, and they sent this joint letter on May 23rd that I'm going to talk about in the timeline, just mentioned briefly here now, because that really separated their interests from the NCAA, and the Power Five just explicitly said, we want boom, 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 and it has to happen now. Their message was immediately, time is of the essence, and that, they repeated that theme throughout the letter. And so the Power Five were just saying, we're, we're going to take over this show. And then things started to fall apart. And some of this was just, I think, incompetence between those two leadership forces. It really dates back to all this dysfunction in the business model. But nobody's in charge. And that ties back into Condoleezza Rice's observation and her work on the Commission on College Basketball. That these are, This is just a big circular firing squad. Nobody wants to accept responsibility. and Everybody's blaming somebody else. So the Power Five saying, hey, this is our opportunity. We need to get involved here and we need to step up here. And then they say, for these reasons, we think a coalition made up of our 65 makes the most sense, but we know the importance of collaborating with the NCAA. We also don't want the NCAA to feel threatened, and we don't want this to seem publicly or privately as a breakaway by the Power Five conferences. That is so important, too, because the Power Five here is laying the foundation for them really being the power players behind the scenes, but they don't want their fingerprints on it for public uh, consumption. They want this to be the NCAA because that creates the appearance of unity, even though there really isn't complete unity here. We don't know the extent of the disunity, and that's unknowable. And it's unknowable now as we move into this next phase of engagement with Congress after the August recess. And then they talk about next steps. And also part of that, and this is important, there's a separate document, and this really goes to the core of how the Power Five are thinking. It's called Commissioner's Messaging for December 10th Power Five President's Meeting. And let's see, on the proposed federal legislative coalition, they talk about the uh, consensus among the Power Five conferences on their antitrust strategy. And that was aligned with the NCAA's antitrust strategy. They marched in lockstep with the NCAA in Austin. And then they say that they need to launch a coordinated strategy, communications, and outreach effort in Washington at a federal level. And they say, we believe that if we get responsible federal legislation, it is critical to be coordinated and aligned. We cannot have mixed messages or multiple proposals from the world of college sports. If we want to have influence, all major players in college sports and stakeholders need to be coordinated. So in this prisoner's dilemma, 
This is the cooperation paragraph. This is we win through cooperation. If we turn on each other and we send mixed messages, if they think that the Power Five is going to split off from the NCAA, we may have blown our chance to get what we want from the Senate. And the best chance for that is through a truly coordinated effort. And then they say they want to select their own lobbying firm and they want the effort jointly managed by the five conferences. And then they agree that it's time for them to act. The time is now. And they say that there are going to be hearings in the first or second quarter of 2020, which turned out to be the case. The first hearing was in February of 2020. Then they get into this section about how we work with the NCAA and other groups. And they say, we don't think it's advisable to brand this coordinated effort by the Power Five as a Power Five effort. Rather, we think it is very important to chart a course so that schools and other conferences could support us and that the NCAA could support us. But notably, we don't think Mark or the NCAA should be taking the lead in Washington. And there are, they go back to these reasons that the NCAA doesn't have a good name in Congress and they have the relationships that matter and all that stuff. But what's really interesting here, this is an acknowledgement that the Power Five basically have Mark Emmert in their pocket and the NCAA in their pocket because the Power Five are the business of big time college sports. And for all the reasons I talked about in the prisoner's dilemma, the NCAA is going to jump when the Power Five say jump. That's just the way that relationship works. So the, the Power Five want to get all this done to preserve their business interests. They just don't want their name on it. They don't want their fingerprints on it. And so they say also, but we don't want the NCAA to be threatened or sidelined. This will require diplomatic discussions. And at some point, this will require a group of presidents and commissioners sitting down with Mark. So they're going to have the come to Jesus meeting with Mark on what's really going to happen here. And that has happened time and time again. And I don't know if that meeting ever occurred. I would love to know if it did what was said, but that was basically, Mark, you need to understand where your bread's buttered here, buddy. And then they say, we as commissioners have had some initial conversations with Mark, but really believe that it will be the voices of our presidents and commissioners collectively aligned that will be required, that will be required. I, I think this is an acknowledgement, too, of Mark Emmert's just uh, really massive ego. And they're saying, we're going to have an intervention with this guy so that he understands his role here. He's getting a little too big for his britches here, and we're running this show, and he's supposed to go out in front for us, and we need to make sure he understands that. So we're going to have a little discussion. Again, I don't know if that ever occurred. But then they talk about foundational principles and messaging. And there's some really interesting bullet points here. So they make some big picture observations. And remember, this is about messaging. This is about how this is packaged for public consumption. So in structuring the messaging, they have uh, four bullet points here that are big picture observations. First, when they're talking about nil rights, they would prefer to call them 
collegiate licensing opportunities for our student athletes. They say, this change in messaging is important because no one really knows the term nil, and we believe it is important to frame it as a licensing opportunity for student athletes within the college system and not some inherent natural right. So they're going back right to Walter Byers' playbook in the 1950s on the student athlete and right to Miles Brand and Wally Renfro's use of the collegiate model. Let's just call it something else, not what it really is. Call it something else so we can divert attention away from what it really is and get what we want. They do not want name, image, and likeness to be viewed as an inherent intellectual property right, a right of publicity. It is not an inherent right. Let's not talk about rights. It's not a right. And there was some discussion uh, along those lines in uh, some of the Senate uh, hearings where some of the senators like, well, this rights thing, is this really a right? And on and on and on. And then they also say we have to have limits so as to not impact recruiting or create pay-for-play uh, professional environment. That's all taken for granted, uh, that they want all the things that the NCAA wants in terms of compensation limits and no employees and, and all that stuff. And then let's see. Oh, here's the other thing. So do we talk about uh, a broad range of athlete-related issues or do we just be conservative and limit it to collegiate licensing opportunities? Because we're not talking about nil rights. It's collegiate licensing opportunities. That never stuck, by the way. But they say we've initially heard through discussions with legislators in Congress that we need to stay narrow and focused on developing legislation that fits with the foundational principles we want to preserve in college sports. So their people are telling them, keep it tight, keep it limited, get what you want, get out. That's the, the way that it was initially packaged by the NCAA-friendly Republican senators, is what I meant to say. So and then they go through all the propaganda and no boosterism and no employees. And oh, they throw in Title IX, which is I, I just find really ironic given that there's not a single woman at this meeting. Oh, here's one last thing I just have to point out. So they say, as they're closing this thing out, that this is just the initial phase and that we may be pressed for more details, but believe over the next couple of months, we can work with responsible legislators to outline what this might mean for a federal bill that gives what we want in college sports. Responsible legislators. What does that mean? That means legislators who agree with us. And if you don't agree with us, if you're Cory Booker or Richard Blumenthal or Brian Schatz, you are irresponsible. <laughs> so, <laughs> responsible legislators. So anyway, uh, th that's the end of the memo. And I just I want to note that I got this online at a website called uh, Out of Bounds, and it's a website on college sports by a guy named Andy Whitry, and uh, it's, a, it's a good blog, and he occasionally comes up with stuff. I don't know what his sources are, but where he got this, I don't know if he ever said, but it's a really interesting document, and it really puts on the table exactly where the Power Five is coming from, and I think that some of the rough contours that they identified in December of 2019 are much clearer now and their relationship with the NCAA. And again, the $64,000 question here, or the $20 billion question, more accurately, is what is the true relationship right now between the NCAA and the Power Five? I think the evidence suggests that they're back to this idea of having the Power Five interest really driving the train here, but they don't want that to be the public face, and they certainly do not want to suggest that there is any breakaway from the NCAA. They want that coordinated message. That was really one of the most prominent points that came out in that December 10th memo, that this has to be coordinated. We cannot afford 
to be perceived as ununited. So I think that's going to be, for public relations purposes, what's happening. But we really got to pay attention to what's happening behind the scenes. And we're going to have to really pay attention to uh, any new hearings, any new statements that come out from the Commerce Committee, what the conference commissioners are saying, and what the Power Five presidents and chancellors are saying. Because it's my belief that as they re-engage with the Senate after this August recess, you're going to start seeing Power Five presidents and chancellors directly engaging senators and employing all the assets in the state to directly engage with senators in their state to impress upon them the importance of doing what's right for the institutional interests and the fan base. And that becomes a political issue. It's not an issue of equity and fairness or an issue of justice. It's about political survival. And given the power, the cultural power and the political power and the financial power that these big-time football products have in these Power Five states, a senator would have to be extraordinarily brave to go against that and uh, do something that could be pitched back in the home state as adverse to the institutional interests of these big-time Power Five schools. And all the minions out in the field talking about the the integrity of college sports and sacred principles of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete and on and on and on. So, again, at the political level, I think the Power Five are going to have a really important influence here. And it's going to become more direct and more aggressive. And so we'll just keep an eye on that. And so I have a list of things I'm going to be paying attention to over the next uh, couple of months. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this out. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always a privilege and an honor to have you along. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 